Hello and welcome to From Know to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover on the show, feel free to email us at fromknowertonothingpodcast at gmail.com or contact us on our Facebook page. Over the next four episodes, we're going to do something we haven't formally done before. We're going to take a couple episodes to look at two philosophers whose views we consider to be opposed. And in the third episode, we'll pit them against each other in a winner-take-all battle royale. Okay, so that's not only way too dramatic, but also something we're wholly unqualified to judge. (laughs) However, we will attempt to evaluate both philosophers' positions and discuss our views on their main points. In the fourth episode, we're going to bring in a couple more philosophers and do a brief book, book review and tie together some of the overarching points. Today, we're going to start with Michel de Montaigne. Did I say the name right? Yeah. Okay, good. Because I realize in the book that we were sort of using as our source, which is um, Why We Are Restless. Right. It's a great book. People should read it. But they mentioned the last name a lot. And I go, I'm reading through the intro and I go, oh man, I don't know if I remember hearing his first name pronounced. <laughs> Michel. Yep, yep. So... Can you give us a brief biography of Montaigne? He's a fascinating figure, a, a person living in the in the 1500s, who, if we if we put it in our own cultural societal terms, would have been middle class, um, maybe a little upper middle class, and and. Was raised was raised in such a way that I mean he's going off to a, a boarding school at age six and and reading uh, work the works of Ovid and other classical writers at age six and onward and of course not taking everything in but but a lot uh, and whose who, whose father was trying to find his way in between the, the quirks and twists of of Catholicism and Christianity and the in the very pointed political clashes that that those two disciplines were having at that particular period of time um, in France and so he he goes to school he. He is embroiled in 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 enmeshed in, in, in all the education, and, and then comes back, and his father essentially buys him a position in uh, in in the court of, of of the time, and and Montaigne um, has a, a best friend, uh, and terrible things happen, and he and he's he gets really tired of the political life. Um, he's elected mayor of his local place. Uh, he didn't want to do it, but the king himself said he should do it. And then he um, he was elected a second time, but the plague happens, and he essentially goes back and retreats to his home, which is a kind of castle in a way. It's about his library, mm. um, which is uh, this almost meme-like place that people refer to Montaigne's library. Uh, uh, etched on the the various um, supporting beams in the library uh, the, the, are the truths or things that he found to be truths from his readings in philosophy. But at 37, he retires. Mm-hmm. 
he and he starts writing and he's developing these things that nobody the, the term is essay um in which he is engaging in um subjective individualistic writing about uh, working his way through ideas and what he thinks about them and uh and this this, this is a stunning uh, collection that he continues to uh, edit a number of times um so people have spent their time trying to find themes and connectivities and so on and so forth but that's really what he's known for yeah yeah no i think that's a, a really good overview he he had a, a very interesting life in that regard yeah. where like you said he grew up upper middle class and then that you know his young adult years were really in in the public sphere in the public eye and then you know he got to into his late 30s and he said i didn't want to do any of that <laughs> right mm -hmm. and he becomes essentially a hermit right mm -hmm. and then and what i thought was sort of funny about it was um you know he had uh some uh, inscription scrawled on one of his walls about yeah. how I, you know, me, I, at the age of 38, have retired from public life gladly <laughs> and with what's left of my short time, having already been halfway through, will, you know, devote myself to, you know, doing this sort of thing. And you go, you're 38, dude. <laughs> like, right. I understand it's a different time and you, and you yeah. don't know how long you have back then. But, um, you know, it, it, it was just phrased in, in you know, a funny yeah, way. Yeah, and and yeah. he, he did live to be... <clears throat> 60, decently old six, yeah yes yeah, 59 60 yeah. something like that so he spent 20 years you know as as a hermit it, you know essentially developing um his philosophy which i think he would take issue with that characterization of it as a philosophy but that's what it was <laughs> and, it, it, it is what it was and, and and he gets he gets so often if if you want i i think one of the best things to read about montaigne other than this book we're going to talk about um, uh, there's a marvelously, uh, un, within the past uh, 15 years, uh, edited version of his essays, which are really worth reading. Because um, you don't have to do a cover to cover. You can you can pick different kinds of topics that you're interested in seeing what he talks about. But the the book uh, that that we're going to be talking about, and and the the article in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which, as we've said many times, is this free, marvelous resource that you can go on line and read about anything in, in philosophy. Um, I enjoyed it because of the, the last time I had visited the Montaigne article, it was uh, very early to the 21st century. And it wasn't a bad article, but it's been substantially um, rethought and, and details and, and, and uh, critiques added that weren't there. So it was a joy to go back and and read that but but it, it's it's um we uh, you know as a literature major i was taught about the, the marvelous writer montaigne and i find him to be a marvelous writer but the argument is that he's not only a writer he is a writer who was a philosopher hmm. and not all writers necessarily are yeah yeah and that's what's interesting about him is that um as we'll see as we get into talking about him you know he he had a his tone was sort of anti-philosophical. You say, listen, we, you know, we don't need to be thinking about this, this big stuff that's way beyond us, right? 
So, you know, he says at the beginning of his essays, right? I'm the subject of this book. So really don't waste your time reading about it because <laughs> it's super vain of me to even be putting this down on paper. Yeah, okay. And, but what he doesn't realize in that moment is that through his violations of civility, pretty much in, t- you know, sort of developing this new um, method of writing, a subjective essay. Um, that he's breaking ground. He's engaged in sort of um, a, a gonzo uh, psychology in a yeah. way that hadn't been done before. So the people of his time looked at it and thought, you know, ah, what a vain, weird dude sitting up in his tower writing about himself, you know, and, yeah. and you know, his, and he, and then for hundreds of years afterwards, right, he was thought of as, as a brilliant writer. Um, but the ideas were still sort of not thought of as, as, being something they weren't taken as seriously uh, philosophically as as they have later become i i think yeah and and because he's essentially the thing that is stunning is that while we may not be able to pin this to him absolutely he essentially is the developer of the idea of self Hmm. yeah that's in itself, in itself, is a very big deal. Oh. Yeah, yeah, and, and it influences a lot of future writers and philosophers <clears throat> in the Enlightenment. And one of them is the guy that we'll be talking about next week that he that sort of critiques Montaigne. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, we should talk about some of the progressive notions Montaigne had. So. Um, do you want to kind of cover some of those, his views on yeah. child education or colonialism well, or? Well, yeah, we'll take some of them and you can, you can, and we'll, we'll yeah. go back and forth with them because I think we probably targeted some of the same things and some different, but he, he, he is where I get to be sometimes, uh, in, in my thinking uh, as a teacher that he's, that the child education, the, the best thing for children is to, to see how other people are, uh, uh, but that's that is also intentionally or not built into our education system. We we put it in a rather blasé, um, 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 a lower tone sometimes. The, the, the argument is, or the, the statement is often, "Well, kids have to know how to get along with each other," which is a coded phrase for. My child's probably better than anybody else, but they gotta, they gotta get along with the hoi polloi. And, and well, underneath all of that is, yeah, they're, they're building social relationships. And whether it's a homeschool situation where lots of other families in a homeschool situation interact, the kids are still getting used to, you do this this way, you do that that way. I, I, I'm seeing it firsthand with, uh, with my granddaughter, oh, yeah, you know, she has uh, friends. She's beginning to what they think of as a friend. They, they, they use the term. They're not, you know. And and uh, this week there was an interaction with uh, a, a little friend and uh, granddaughter wanted the, the friend to come to her house, and she and the parent was fine and did. And there I was, and I was essentially just making sure they had a drink and making sure that they were well. And standing back, and they're 
Oh, I have an idea. Let's do this. Oh, I have an idea. Let's do this. No, I, how, how about this idea? How about, you know, they're, they're spending time debating instead of playing mm. and, and looking at in the playroom is like, what's this toy you have? Do you have first, do you have toys? Yes, I have toys. If you don't look at the toys, I don't know what this toy is. What is, what is this? do you like this food? No, I don't. Uh, how about this food? And, and in microcosm, it is what Montaigne was talking about the better aspect of education. I, I don't, I'm not pretending to say that he would, he would go along with the thing that I'm talking about, uh, in any absolute way. I, he wouldn't, uh, he wasn't an absolutist, <laughs> but the social development of very young people, um, is desperately important. And while in his time, what, and what he thought that education should be a lot more time spent with a, a lot of different people, like a, adults, uh, we don't have that as a primary goal in, in our lives for the most part. Uh, in, in our culture, at least people train people not to talk to other adults so if you don't know them. And so then another adult has to sort of try to break that ice with people. It, it's okay. And, you know, <laughs> um, I, I don't think if, if, whatever Montaigne was thinking about it, um, the point for me of, 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 um, congruence is that you should be encountering lots of ideas, lots of ways of doing things. Um, by lots of people. Yeah. Yeah. And that was kind of his, his view on it. And it really, it was established through his father. Um, his, when he was born, his father had a very specific <clears throat> educational plan for his son. And this came from being upper middle class, you know, but at the time, the educational milieu was sort of, you know, okay, you're going to read these books. You're going to memorize these passages. You're going to recite these things. And his dad said, no, we're going to do, you know, we're going to play games. We're going to have concrete examples. We're going to mm -hmm. do, um, you know, some of these things that were, you know, far beyond their years in terms of educational philosophy. And um, obviously, Montaigne felt that he benefited from that because a lot of his, you know, thoughts on, on child education corroborated what his dad did with, with him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but. There are the things. There are the things that he that he innovated, right? Yeah. That we, the idea that Europe was uh, better in all ways, superior to the so-called quote air quotes barbarians. Hmm. He was poking at that a lot. Uh, yeah. He uh, he seriously questioned the notion that humans are superior to animals. Hmm. This was in the 1500s. I mean, yeah. he was, uh, it, it, this is no small thing. Yeah, he said a lot of things that would were very progressive. Yeah, as a matter of fact, he may have been the first person to say some of them at the time. Um, you know, things like, you know, that Europe shouldn't colonialize America because of the mistreatment of the indigenous people, yeah. right? And like yeah. you just mentioned, the Europeans and, and barbarians and, <laughs> you know, even even to the point of, people being superior to, to animals, he's already thinking of these things in, in what was essentially a pre-scientific world in many ways. Mm -hmm. And he was actually sort of an ardent critic of the scientific institutions of the time 
um, he sort of saw them as, you know, something where, uh, okay, well, you're, you have your own separate institution, which is science, and it doesn't really, you know, generalize to the, the, the population as a whole or to concepts as a whole outside of it. You guys are doing your own thing. Yeah. Um, which, you know, that might be a, a view that, I think that's a view that's sort of reviving in an ugly way in modern times, right? It is. Where, no, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I get, I would seriously guess that Montaigne would not be an anti-vaxxer, for instance. Right. Um, he wasn't anti-science. He was, as you've often said, science, science itself says we don't know everything. We, the, mm -hmm. we, we keep guessing, we keep theorizing, we, we, we test until the theory doesn't work. And then we find that, uh, then we scaffold up. We've talked about this before. And I think, uh, so it's, but the, uh, the epistemic, uh, the issue, the epistemological issue, the knowledge, what is knowledge and how do we have it? And, and what is really not knowledge that we think is knowledge? Uh, he was wrestling with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, um, yeah, if you were to drop him into modernity, right? What would his thoughts be on science? He'd be running to his library, <laughs> slamming the door. <laughs> it might not be too far off of what he he did think, right? Where you know science today has reached such a level of specialization that lay people have a hard time interpreting it. Mm -hmm. I don't think it would make him anti-scientific, but I think that his view would be what it was essentially back then, which is that okay, science is its own institution. Let the scientists do what the scientists do. Yep. But if yep. you're a lay person, there's no real point in trying to consider or fathom the finer points of science because it's beyond you. And therefore, what's the point? And so if you really think about it, that doesn't go the anti-vaxxers way, right? Because that's what they're trying to do, right? Yeah. If you are a lay person and you're trying to comment on the finer points of science, Montaigne would say, well, you don't have the skills to do that. Science is mm -hmm. its own institution in a way that, you know is beyond lay people and of course you know there's been science communicators and people who have tried to break down this barrier in one way or another um so yeah not saying that montaigne's view is is necessarily right or no. wrong but just sort of you know trying to bring it into the modern context it's what makes him so one of the many things that make him his his writing so interesting because essentially uh, he is developing his own kind of uh, skepticism. Yeah. Uh, but not a skepticism with an intent to undermine, not a skepticism with an intent to somehow back, go a back way of, of proving oneself right. But, uh, but it's the curiously challenging notion of suspending judgment, hmm. making observations, but not, but not as is so so human and so simple leaping to conclusions and saying therefore i am always right or whatever perhaps no here's what i see yeah yeah he towed a fine line there between you know um explicitly saying that he was trusting his intuitive judgment to mm -hmm. um to philosophize essentially but also not abandoning the, the, you know, challenging, but not abandoning the knowledge that was already established in some ways. Yeah. So, 
we've talked, you know, we're sort of talking around it, but let's kind of address how did Montaigne's place and time influences thought? Because I think the important thing for the listeners to know if, if they don't know about Montaigne is how early he was, right? Like we're, right, you know, right, we're talking right. about pre-enlightenment, you know, essentially where he's, yeah, he's thinking about things in some, in some different ways. So how did, you know, his family and his cultural and his religious context sort of contribute to the way his thoughts were developing? In the time in which he lived, um, there was something going on that while we don't, we, we can't in, in our own time have exactly the same thing. Uh, I'm just going to come right out and say it. We, we, we are drifting or, or being pushed or both into something that's not altogether dissimilar from what he was experiencing, which is to say a clash of religious authority that is also embedded in political and state governance uh, in such a way that if you cross, you happen to be on the wrong side at the wrong moment, then terrible things can happen to you. Um, and might well have happened with him. Uh, it, it wasn't an idyllic, oh, I go, I close myself into my library, I never come out again or anything like that. We, uh, uh, although I've seen great cartoons about that kind of thing. Uh, uh, his library wasn't a Noah's Ark, but it, uh, he was, he was, as many people with him were trying to survive and do more than survive under uh, a shifting set of social expectations. What, what is the role of the king? What is the role of, of religion? Um, uh, to, to whom do we have to give uh, allegiance and loyalty? And, and none of those things involved the individual in any sense of the importance of the individual. Hmm. Um, and I'm being probably too vague, but that's really, the, I think, the idea. The, the, the swirl that that he was that his writing emerges in yeah you know a lot of people sort of consider him as the first thinker of the enlightenment for that reason you have to think about how large of a shift in thinking it is to go from the middle ages to the enlightenment yes, because the yes. middle ages you know when you're looking at feudalism and um you know sort of the church as being not only um a, a, a huge political power, but also a, a large power over the gatekeeper of knowledge, you know? And so coming out of that time and starting to, to challenge some of those, you know, power dynamics early on is a very daunting and dangerous thing to do. It, it, it is. And, 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 and you're in his case, I mean, some gentlemen were given all kinds of titles. Um, that indicated something of their status um, with whomever was in, in charge. Um, he he put all those titles in his first edition of his book. Um, a few years later, he removed them because he didn't think titles should uh, could define the individual self. 
that struck me or, uh, the, uh, relatively early on. Hmm. Um, and so you get into this strange thing, and this is a little sidetrack, but I think it's, it's important. Titles, uh, for the sake of, of, of trying to browbeat other people are, are vile things. But titles are very useful in uh, establishing where you are in any human hierarchy. And we, we humans establish hierarchies like crazy, don't we? Um, manager, assistant manager, associate manager, whatever, uh, instructor, uh, assistant professor, associate professor, full professor. Until um, people outside any particular system, it seems like, well, well, isn't that really pompous and everything? But but it isn't because you work uh, in certain ways according to the strictures of a certain field in order to achieve those. It's not just somebody just says, oh, now, now you're this because I say you are. You are that if you have uh, made yourself that and, and, and accept that others have found that to be. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I think that it does. You so, know, you, there's, I, there's things that you've done. There's work that you've completed. There's, um, you've gone through a, a, a crucible or battery of tests to establish yourself as being worthy of that title. But I think that if you use that title to shield yourself from having to be responsible for certain aspects of humanity, that's yeah. where it goes wrong. That's where it goes right. awry. It, it, yeah, yeah, you and each week you've been very kind and introduced me as, as, as professor and, and, uh, ontologically I am, <laughs> um, officially no, no longer for, for years. Um, I, I, I couldn't go into a place and, and, uh, and be, uh, I had have to be vetted all over again if that were to mm. ever happen, and it's not going to. Uh, but it's, but so it's not a, t it's not something I wield as. Oh well, look at this. Here's my lightsaber. I'm a professor. It, no, that that would be meaningless. What with the meaning in it for me is the work it took to get to that place. And in and in Montaigne's case, and what the, this this whole rambling side trap uh, track is about. I think is that what I learned from that, um, his choice not to put the titles in is that titles aren't things to, uh, somehow the, like the wizard of Oz, uh, the scarecrow was given uh, a degree and therefore he has a brain, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, th there's an old saying, uh, a phrase, uh, Edward Albee, the, the playwright uses this, uh, that, uh, uh, Interesting, if true, uh, <laughs> but we're interested in what's interesting before we're interested in truth, and so we can get all caught up in the baubles that life casts at us, yeah. Um, rather than um, what it is that we have to say or what we're trying to do. Yeah, I think, um, like you and I were talking before the show, I've been listening to the Dao De Ching mm -hmm. over and over again this week, and that's one of the the chapters is, you know, this, he says, uh, a man who defines himself does not know himself. Right. And so I think that's what titles have the ability to do. I think a title is useful, um, from the sense that it'll, it can alert outside people to your credentials, right. To, right. to saying this person has, has put in the work and has 
you know, establish themselves as being this person. But I think after establishing that, if, if the person who has that title has internalized it in some way, I think it almost loses something to it, right? Yeah. It's one thing to, to come on the show and say, hey, I'm a doctoral student in psychology, because that lets you know that I'm not just some guy in... It gives a context. Right, right. It tells you, it tells you something about me. But when I'm here, I am just some guy talking about philosophy internally, guy, right? Yeah, right. Some guy who happens to be among all the other things that he is, a doctoral student, but it also says... Look, I, I take reading seriously and I take ideas seriously. So it's that context that's important. You know, I, one of the things that I think Montaigne would, I uh, would be puzzled by is, is our, uh, our propensity in, in, in our own society to, uh, we have this bipolar thing. We, we say we value education, but only if it gives you job training. We really, in the aggregate, do not value education. People are generally poo-poo education. Oh, you got book learning. You don't have street smarts. Well, that's what Montaigne, in a less vulgar way, would be saying. Uh, because you can have both. <laughs> right. Um, but look at what we do in so many uh, professions or occupations. Uh, we default to first names and everything. Uh, uh, Pastor Dave. Or... Uh, um, nurse uh, Peter or Nurse Jenny or or uh, Doctor Sally or and that is a diminishment that is that uh, it, to me is profound. It's it's like saying, well, we we can't take you entirely seriously until we reduce you to your first name. But look how it doesn't work all the way up through a chain. Uh, uh, I had lots of students call me Professor Norm. Okay, okay, you know, you 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 don't you don't lecture away at students about that because you you, you want to uh, work in however you can work, but but it's not uh, it's not President Mike, <laughs> right? It's not uh, Trustee Janet, you know. It's 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 not Provost. I, I don't know, fill in a name, you know, Provost Elizabeth, it's not those, it, it stops. There's a place at which, oh, we can't, we can't do that. Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting. Uh, you had the Congress pass a, a dress code recently because you had a guy <laughs> show up in recent. a sweatshirt and, and gym shorts, right? You do, right? Where you go, well, could somebody dress in those clothes and execute in the office. And yeah, they could, yeah, they could. But there's something about it that violates the rules of decorum. And I see this becoming its own episode somewhere down the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to think, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we won't get too far into the no, weeds. But no. but no, the, the point is that Montaigne had this very subtle view on established knowledge and skepticism of that knowledge yeah. and, and, and a subjective twist to it. So... Yeah. What are some of the salient points he arrives at in his essays? What are some of the highlights? Um, there are there are just there are so many. Uh, for instance, if you if you just read a few of, of of the essays, and some of them are very short, some of them are are, are rather rather lengthy, but. Uh, uh, 
things like I quote others in order to better express myself. Hmm. You know, traditionally people quote other people because they want to say, see, I'm learned. I, I know these things. And um, he's saying, if I'm quoting this person, somehow I better figure out what I have learned by encountering that person's writing because it's about me, but not in a narcissistic, an, an absolutely narcissistic sense. Yeah, this is a great segue from what we were just talking about. And I think that it is salient for um, especially people in higher education, right? Um, yeah. The course I'm taking right now is teaching the college student and, you know, they have a section on how to teach students not to plagiarize, right? And these sorts of things. And what Montaigne was saying, he he had this thing where it, it appeared to be contradictory, what he was saying, right? Which is that, um, listen, you know, established knowledge, whatever, it's, it's all up for debate. You can challenge, you can challenge all of it. And it's about what I think personally. But then he had this erudite and, you know, far reaching knowledge of other thinkers and other people who, who did have an authority on knowledge that he would draw on. But what he would was always saying was that if I'm drawing on this person, I'm not copying their idea. I what they're saying is something that I believe, and now I am adding to it. Uh, yes, and I have to figure out why I believe that, not just because they said it. And that's the foundation of higher education. When yeah. when you're writing a paper, you know, in in college, what your teachers want you to do is to read the thoughts of other people and use those thoughts without just wholeheartedly copying and, and subscribing to those thoughts. They want you to read them, critically examine them, think, use the parts that you believe in and add in what your views on it are. Yeah. There's a synthesis. Yeah, exactly. And that synthesis is means finding your way. He says the greatest thing in the world is to figure out how to know how um, to belong to yourself, to belong to yourself, which means know thyself. Mm. Basically, we're back to that ancient uh, thought. Uh, so there's that, uh, but he has all, these are all out of context, but there's... Uh, but his essays always were, and that's that was yes. some people's critique of them, right? It's yes. like, Wait, how can we just go from this to this? Because there's no um, connecting thread. He just writes down things as they appear to him. And then over the years, because he wrote these over the course of 15 years, he, finds he would add to them. Yes. And he would shuffle them. Right. You know, yeah. Arrange them. Well, that would imply an, uh, some kind of thread or, or through line. You know, but, but he's, but he's, in some ways, he's a skeptic, not unlike Diogenes. I mean, so, yeah. so he's, <laughs> he, uh, the greatest king in the world is uh, still only sits on his own bottom. <laughs> now imagine you you're saying this in a place where kings can have you offed. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> but essentially, we know what he's saying. <laughs> it's like, that's really down to earth. Mm. Um, and and so there, you know, he who fears, and now he's an Epicurean. Right? He's not Epicurus, but he's just saying, he who fears he shall suffer already suffers what he fears. Mm. 
you fear death, well, then you're living on a, a thousand million deaths because that's where your head is all the time. So he's, he's, he's taking this, um, uh, if I speak of myself in different ways, that is because I look at myself in different ways. He's acknowledging a human complexity that theretofore had not been particularly asserted. And that's something we still struggle with today and something that you and I try to acknowledge in the show on a regular basis, right? Is that there's this premium put on establishing and sticking to a consistent viewpoint in, in society, right? And you and I are always saying, well, we're going to change our mind. We're going to contradict ourselves. We're going to yeah. You know, because that's part of, of learning and growing is, is that we have these discussions and as you bring to light things that I didn't find in my research or, or as I'm talking, I realize, you know, parts of my thought process that are faulty. I reflect, you know, there's, there's a metacognition, there's a critical thinking aspect that goes, huh, I'm going to have to adjust what I thought about this and, and reevaluate. Yeah. And that's a good thing. Right? It's a very it's, good thing. But some people, you know, they're critiquing and some people still do critique Montaigne for that. Oh, he contradicts himself in this part and on that part. Yeah, he said he was gonna, you know, like, uh, what are you so upset about? You know, like this, you know, he changed his, his mind. You know, he, he it was written over the course of 15 or 20 years. I'd be really concerned if he didn't change his mind over that span of time, you know. But yeah, at, at at his time and still today, this is something that that people don't want. It seems to undermine your authority or undermine your knowledge. And this is where, again, those titles and decorum thing play in again, yeah. right? Yeah. And you've talked about it in the past. If you're somebody who earned a PhD in something 40 years ago and you never learned another thing about it, and 40 years later, you're just trying to throw the your doctor title in people's face in order to establish that you know more than they do, that's not honest, right? As opposed to somebody who has no titles, but is a, a diligent student of, of, a, of a subject and, and looks at things the correct way and is keeping up on, on current events. Are they going to have the same technical skills? Are they going to have encountered the same tools that, that a doctor may have? No, but that doesn't mean that they don't have something meaningful to say. And, and you're, you're right. I, I think for, for me, for him now, some people, uh, and I know this book that we're, we're going to be talking about. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I, I think there are some focus on the idea that Montaigne is just a uh, well, live as well as you can live in the moment. Hmm. It's almost Zen. It's almost Dada. Right, but uh, but it sounds uh, perhaps frivolous or or not as serious. Yes, but we got to look toward the long term and the generations to come, and so and so we do. Yes, we do. Uh, but that doesn't mean you can't. We've talked before in this about living in the moment, whatever that means. We've poked at that and tried to, uh, but we have to keep growing. One of my favorite things that, that it, one of the, in, in his essays, one of the, he said about, about Socrates, but he also said about getting older. No, yeah, he started 37, but he was getting older. <laughs> There's nothing more notable in Socrates than that he found time when he was an old man to learn music and dancing and thought it time well spent. <laughs> That's deeply meaningful to me at this stage in my life, particularly. 
Yeah. Uh, to be making art, to be having these conversations uh, 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 so, so very frequently, to, to, to treasure and cherish those, those, those opportunities to, to be having my hands in the guts of an engine. <laughs> when I found myself that I really had to with, because I, uh, I'm inclined to help my brother, right? Uh, uh, but uh, this week, building a 12 foot long a crocodile puppet for a local school uh, production of Peter Pan. So I'm, I'm making puppet and thinking about engineering. I'm thinking about how could this move? How could this swivel? What could I, because I'm not an engineer, right? And I've, I've messed so many things up with it and uh, used, uh, but you, you're playing. It's playing. It's what Diane Ackerman called deep play. Which, which means not to just be goofy all the time, but uh, what you were talking about with the Tao Te Ching, uh, uh, some people refer to Lao Tzu as, as, as the old master, mm-hmm. and some people refer to him as the old boy, is another <laughs> translation of it, right? And so, yeah, that's, and you and I were just talking about right before we hit the record button, you know, as I've been reading, you know, going through the Tao Te Ching again. You know, they, he, he mentions that in the beginning and I go, I like that translation so much better, you know, because the old master, again, you, it's just surrounded with this decorum, right? This, this hermit sitting cross-legged on top of a mountain answering, you know, travelers questions on what the meaning of life is. We hear the old boy and you go, well, here's a man that even in his old age has a boyish enthusiasm for things. Yeah. And I think. That's, that's something that society has a hard time reconciling, right? Is that somebody can be old and can have a boyish enthusiasm about things and can still have some knowledge, right? Some, some things that are authoritative because for some reason there's this conception that if you are enthusiastic in your old age, you, you don't have some authority of some kind, you know, which is, which is outside of it. It's, it's just, uh, there's another one, but I, I was going through d- different things. So, oh, yeah, that that, that essay that, that that reminded me of you uh, as a writer, of of a- any of us who who write. Um, he's, he's, he can just take you out at the knees. <laughs> and, and he says, "Man is certainly stark mad. He cannot make a worm, and yet he will be making gods by dozens." <laughs> yeah. yeah, but but it's you know, but he's not saying don't make gods by the dozen. He's just saying okay, you know, he's it to me. There's there's this inherent uh, spirituality uh, which is neither here nor there to somebody because I I do appreciate about Montaigne that he's not trying to say you must believe this or you have to believe. He's not being didactic. He's not being pedantic. He's he's saying, okay, here's what I here's what I think. I'm not um, I'm not asserting at all that that's what you ought to think. Yeah. Um, so, but you know, well, now we're in the 21st century. Well, we there are people who can make quantum dots. They got Nobel prizes for that, and, and should I, you know, and, and, and making life forms. But we still do lots of gods. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, we've, we've talked, we sort of talked around it again, but I think that the main topic that we're going to be looking at and what we're going to sort of con- contrast with next mm-hmm. episodes, Philosopher, is this idea of 
imminent contentment. So what is imminent contentment? In a nutshell, <laughs> as I understand it over time, imminent contentment is the, um, the uh, finding of that which is enough in any given day. Uh, the, the reaching of a place where you can say, I, I am at peace, at least with something, and, uh, without uh, any kind of assertion of some kind of grandiose notion of a utopia, or I'm, I'm at peace about everything, and I'm just going to sit like a rock for 400 years. Or, you know. hmm. That's a little bit vague, but... Yeah, and so I think that this notion that he came to, you can see how it would be heavily influenced by his life, right? Mm -hmm. So he, mm -hmm. you know, you grew up, you're upper middle class, you spend your, your whole first half of your life in the public eye, you know, being mayor, being a statesman, being at court, you know, doing all these things. And then you get sick of it and you just, you retire to your library and you start writing and in the sanctuary of that place, right, where you're, now you don't have to deal with those other things, you start to go, hey, this is, this is enough, right? And, and it's, it would be interesting, too, to do with this. So we're going to look at Montaigne this week. Next time, we're going to look at a, a, a philosopher that contrasts with him heavily. Absolutely, yeah. It, it sort of would be interesting to do an episode comparing, again, with, with Lao Tzu, right? With with yeah, and, and certainly there would. Are, there are and many I, things that are are very similar. It'd be interesting to talk about the to try to do the opposite rather than taking two contrasting viewpoints and then right. trying to reconcile them. Take two very similar viewpoints and then trying to contrast them. I think because there's more use in that. Yeah, because there's there's many things in the Tao Te Ching that that are applicable to this. Right, this this idea of doing not doing, right, which is you know action through non action. You know thinking through non thought which is a very abstract, difficult concept to grasp, but it's essentially this, this, you know, I think that the most salient example is the athlete, right? Where you go, well, an athlete doesn't have to think about, you know, accomplishing the complex, complex tasks his body does. His body has a greater knowledge than his mind does about how to calculate a distance to jump or a distance to run or to do these things. And so I think that that's, that's sort of, there's some crossover there with what Montaigne was thinking with imminent contentment, where he goes, when I dance, I dance, right? When I eat, I eat, you know? But he doesn't say that he does it perfectly. And this is the thing. Mm. It's, it's, it's imminent contentment has um, the guardrails, the boundaries of limits to whatever vision of, of happiness or, or contentment. Um, that that you might have it's uh I, i'm not a, a rough way of saying it might be saying okay yeah be content not entirely with everything the way that it is but hey i danced today hmm. for me that works hey i i i played grade grade two uh, jazz piece of music and a blues piece of music this week on the piano it's not performance <laughs> it's not for anybody it's just for my ears, and that brings me 
some, some joy. Now, if that's all I did, then one could argue that you know, he locked away and said, oh, well, this is all about me having a good time. I don't care about the rest of the world. And that's not it. And that's not, that's not what Montaigne was saying. It's, can you be, can you find some happiness? Can you find some peace? True happiness, momentary as it is, fleeting as the peace is, in that particular day. I, when I dance, I dance. Doesn't mean I dance like Simone Biles doing gymnastics. <laughs> uh, when I run with my granddaughter, I run. She thinks it's funny. <laughs> I run, Grandpa, but she knows that I'm running, and then she laughs. <laughs> Maybe she's partly laughing at the old guy running, but I think she's also laughing because I did. Right. Huh. Yeah, there's there's an interesting thing to, to point out there, right? Which is, um, again, the subtlety here. Uh, you know, with, with modern life, and we're going to talk about this next week, and especially the week after looking at Tocqueville and, and some of these other guys where, yes, Montaigne is saying to, to be happy in the moment, but that's the thing is we have, we have many moments in our life to be content with, right? Yeah. We can, we can be content doing a podcast and we can be content playing music, but we also have to find a way to be content doing the work that we, we do, do. And, and dealing with the people that we deal with and, and dealing with the harder parts of life. And so what is going, I think where the linchpin in our conversation, the through line over the next few weeks is going to be, how do you establish what, which events you should be applying yourself to, to be content, right? Mm. Because... Mm -hmm. What we what we're talking about with Montaigne right now is very salient to me personally, right? Because I work in a field where I could I could go somewhere else and make twice as much money as I make right now. Yep. But if I wanted to do that, I would have to answer emails and phone calls at night. I would have to work on the weekends. I would have to do these things Precise. that would that would be huge sacrifices. And so I go, well, between podcasting and making music and writing and painting and pursuing a PhD and everything else that I do, is it worth it to give all or most of those things up in order to double the amount of money that I make? That, you know, either way, both of those things could make a huge impact on my life, right? And as a philosopher, could I find a way to be content and to find meaning in all of that extra work? while giving up those other things. I'd like to think that I could, but Montaigne's whole point is that it's a subjective thing. There isn't an absolute thing out there, right? And for me personally, I give up the money to do these other things because in these other things, it's much easier for me to find that I am in the moment, that I am enjoying my life at this time doing this thing than it is to, to go out and, and increase yeah. my life in yeah. some other Imminent contentment involves developing, constantly working, as, as he says, because he's talking about the self. In current terms, it would be that phrase, we're constantly working on ourselves. <laughs> this is the self-help, and, and legitimate self-help and, and therapeutic, uh, one of the many things that people are taught to, to do to help themselves. 
and he says to compose our character is our duty <laughs> ah ah it's not just all whimsy we have a duty to figure out who we are and to make compose who we are not to compose books that's not our duty but if we're writing to figure out who we are then the composing of books is is this legitimate and and not to win back in the you know amazing mm -hmm. not to win not battles not provinces but order and tranquility in our conduct mm. <laughs> imagine if people were thinking this yeah, right yeah. now and that doesn't mean it doesn't mean towing the line being a quiet meek you know it it, it means in uh, in who you are uh, bringing that to order and not just random flying off the handle at, at things there's so much to learn from this one thing our great and glorious masterpiece is to live appropriately hmm. but for him appropriately meant attentive to who you are and how you were doing things yeah yeah and I, that's it's a really powerful thing and it's why the book was was really great i mean it's in the title why we are restless right mm -hmm. and and looking at what it is about humans and there's different varying cultural contexts right like where like we Tocqueville is going to highlight you know the specifically american yeah. aspects of it and um you know before the show you me and a, my wife amanda were, were talking about different events and how um we respond to them right and there's been research into this that have shown that has shown there's there's a cultural aspect to it right um people in western societies tend to have better mental health outcomes if they vent and and express their emotions people in eastern cultures tend to have better mental health outcomes if they suppress emotions and so there's a cultural element to it what what sort of teachings and what sort of things society and culture value but i think there's there's personal components to it too because mm -hmm. although i'm not from an eastern culture i know for myself personally that i have better mental health outcomes if i suppress emotions you know there it's funny because actually during the pandemic there was this period where i you know obviously everybody's hard having a hard time right and i thought you know it'd probably be good for me to to get some of this out and so I'd go to work and I'd come home every day and I would just, I'd vent to Amanda. And what I found out after a few months was that it was making me feel a lot worse. Like now I was ruminating on these things and I was letting them, you know, rather than starting to talk about them and having the anger dissipate, the anger was building, right? And so for me, the imminent contentment, learning to, to be true to who I was is recognizing the strength within myself to put outside events into a perspective that allowed me to master them with an internal locus of control and not have to, you know, express it in anger or a frustration outwardly. And that gave me, that gave me a strength of character to deal with it that way. Right. And that's what Montaigne is saying is that people are going to, it's going to be different, you know, and it's going to be different. But it's your duty to figure out how you how you're doing it. You yeah. know what? That's 
the, the, the purpose of life, the meaning of life, right, is to find these things out for yourself. And then he wrote for, you know, 20 years <laughs> essays about himself to try to figure it out. Yeah, I, I don't think they're, I, uh, this is probably overstating, but I, I don't think that we would have had existentialism hmm. without Montaigne. You can see seeds of all kinds of things there. You, he doesn't necessarily say the universe doesn't, doesn't care and so on, but, but the idea of the duty of making meaning of your own life is embedded in the essays. Yeah, it's, you know, it's paradoxical how a, a guy who, viewed himself as as retreating um into his his library and just sort of vainly writing a book about himself came to influence many philosophers and the field of education and the field of psychology mm -hmm. and and many other things afterward because of you know the fact that he engaged in a style that that didn't exist at the time and he was thinking about things and being unafraid to write about them in a way that that was alien to the time hmm. and so yeah he just had a great influence and i you know it's going to be a fun series because <laughs> i think that we've done what i wanted to do which was examine his ideas and and bring out the good in them and now next week we're going to look at a philosopher that is going to say that's wrong <laughs> and we're going to and we're going to examine him and we're going to look at the good of his ideas and right. then you know, in the third episode, we'll try to reconcile the two positions. And then the fourth episode, we'll bring in const in context from future philosophers to sort of review um, the overarching concepts of, of the book that introduced them um, in the ways that they've been. So I'm really excited for the ones going forward. Yes. And until next time, keep pondering.